A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Anglo-Dutch Wars, Part 3 of 4. Last week I described the first Anglo-Dutch War, from 1652 to 1654, when the English achieved their main objective of rebalancing the North Sea shipping trade in their favour. Commercial tensions between the two nations were not really resolved, so although peace returned for a while, the English and Dutch would go to war twice again in the 17th century. The political context for each war, especially in England, was different each time. In England, Oliver Cromwell became effectively a military dictator. After dismissing the Rump Parliament in 1653, he tried various constitutional experiments. Later that year, a new assembly was convened, which became known as the Bare Bones Parliament, but was too radical for Cromwell's liking, and lasted only a few months. Cromwell then had himself declared as Lord Protector, assisted by a Council of State and a Parliament, which would be elected every three years. Under the Protectorate, Parliament proved again less submissive than Cromwell hoped. He dismissed it in January 1655 and replaced it with direct military rule. The army now found itself responsible for unpopular policies, especially taxation and laws on religion and public morality. To most people, military rule was more tyrannical than anything perpetrated by King Charles I. Cromwell realised the untenability of the system and reluctantly agreed to call another parliament in September 1656. The new parliament sought to detach Cromwell from the army and proposed that the protectorship be hereditary. England appeared to be in the process of becoming a monarchy again in all but name, and in May 1657, Parliament offered Cromwell the crown with the so-called Humble Petition. Cromwell agonised for six weeks over the offer. He was attracted by the prospect, but in a speech on the 13th of April 1657, he declined and declared his belief that God's providence had spoken against the office of king. Much of Europe was still potentially hostile to the regicide regime, and there remained the threat of a royal insurrection at home. The navy could not be safely scaled back, but some means should be found to keep them occupied, preferably well away from home waters where dissent or mutiny was a danger. 
Cromwell considered a potential friendship or alliance with Spain, and offered one on the condition that the English were granted liberty of conscience within the Spanish dominions, and that free trade be allowed between England and the West Indies. When the Spanish refused, Cromwell felt emboldened to test their power in the West Indies in a campaign known as the Western Design. The riches of Spanish America was what initially drew North Europeans to the New World. By the 1650s, a strong economy there had created a buoyant market for enslaved labour, provisions and manufactured goods. The Spanish crown took steps to limit access to its American markets. With some exceptions, such as slave traders, foreign nationals were prohibited from entering Spanish-American ports while settling in Spanish-American territories. Cromwell was the first English ruler who systematically employed the government to extend the colonial possessions of England. The first New England colonies, which had grown up within Cromwell's lifetime, strongly sympathised with the Parliament in its struggle with the King. In the islands and in the southern colonies where the English were developing tobacco and sugar plantations, things were very different. There, the general feeling was hostile to the Puritans and favourable to the monarchy. At the end of 1654, an English fleet set sail for the Caribbean. They suffered a heavy defeat in an attempt to subdue the city of Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola. The remaining members of the expedition managed to sail to Jamaica. They were able to take and occupy the island, which at the time looked like a poor reward, and then turned out very profitable. In response, Spain declared war on England. Cromwell reached out to the French, who were then still at war with Spain. Each side agreed they would not harbour domestic enemies of the other, which in effect meant that Charles II would not be allowed in France, and they agreed to try and prevent privateers from attacking each other's ships. In 1657, the Treaty of Paris between England and France confirmed the growing rapprochement between the two countries. In the Anglo-Spanish War of 1654 to 1660, Robert Blake and the rest of the English forces succeeded in crippling Spain's capacity for waging war by blockading Spanish ports and attacking their treasure ships from the Americas. The Spanish responded with a privateering campaign which badly hit the English shipping trade and therefore gave the Dutch the opportunity to recover trade at lost during the First Anglo-Dutch War. The major land actions of the war took place in the joint Anglo-French campaign in the Spanish Netherlands in 1657, where both allies made territorial gains. The English gained a foothold on the continent with the acquisition of the port of Dunkirk, which hitherto had been a base for privateers. In 1658, Cromwell was suddenly struck by a bout of malarial fever and soon died at the age of 59 on the anniversary of two of his most famous victories, Dunbar and Worcester. He was buried with great ceremony 
with an elaborate funeral at Westminster Abbey. The rapid and unexpected nature of Cromwell's death brought about uncertainty as what would happen next. He was succeeded as Lord Protector by his son Richard. However, Richard had no power base in Parliament or the army and was never able to assert his personal authority over the various factions. He was forced to resign in May 1659, ending the Protectorate. During the period of Oliver Cromwell's ascendancy, each of the countries of the British Isles had been deeply affected by the years of political turmoil. He was a complicated man to understand, sometimes a very adept politician, at other times crude and impatient. Trevor Ryle, in his book Civil War, The Wars of the Three Kingdoms, sums up his character. Quote, Cromwell emerged on the battlefield as a natural leader of men and a commander with an uncanny ability to read a battle and a capacity to know when to act decisively. In his parliament he demonstrated a less sure touch, showing himself impatient of the slow speed of their deliberations. History has not always been kind to him, seeing in him the extremes of the Republican who helped to kill a king and the Conservative who helped to kill off the reformers of his age. As a character who changed the course of British history, he is not only difficult to ignore, but equally difficult to pin down. End quote. As for the significance of England's experiment with republicanism, although the revolution was far from complete or permanent, the monarchy could never again assume unchallenged primacy, and Parliament would become the main executive authority determining national policies. The Republic was not so much overthrown as disintegrated. Once Oliver Cromwell's charismatic leadership was absent, it was clear the existing political setup had little support. At first, there was no clear leadership from the various factions who jostled for power. It took the decisive action of General Monk to decide matters. He led an army of 8,000 men from Edinburgh and took control of the situation. He then readmitted all the members of the Long Parliament, who had been excluded, and many of whom wished for a return to the monarchy. Charles II, from his base in the Netherlands, was uncertain and feared Monk might still set himself up as a Lord Protector. In fact, Monk organised discussions with Charles for his return. At the beginning of April 1660, Charles issued a declaration offering a free pardon to anyone who swore allegiance to the Crown, with the exception of those who had voted for his father's death. Charles also promised religious toleration to all peaceful Christians. On the morning of the 1st of May, the House of Lords declared that, quote, according to the ancient and fundamental laws of this kingdom, the government is and ought to be by king, lords and the commons, end quote formally putting an end to the Republic. Charles sailed to England and progressed towards London to confirm and celebrate the fact of the restoration. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Very quickly, things got back to how they were before the Protectorate. Those few who were outspokenly hostile to the monarchy were quickly dismissed, but the rest wisely kept quiet and were forgiven for any past disloyalties. After a negotiated return of Crown and Church lands, the basic infrastructure of English landholding was very similar to what it had been before 1640. One long-term effect was changes to patterns of religious worship. While the control of the Church of England had been interrupted, religious radicalism found expression in the form of numerous sects. The most important were the Quakers, who became a national movement and openly challenged traditional hierarchies. King Charles II was more politically intelligent than his father, Charles I, but he did not have a clear political agenda, was disinclined to work steadily at the business of government. He clearly resented his dependence on parliamentary grants and sought ways to break free, but he never pushed too far. Regarding matters of religion, he favoured the broad church strategy of his grandfather, James I. He took seriously the promise of religious liberty and encouraged the Church of England to be advisory rather than overbearing in its approach to liturgy. In 1672, he issued a Declaration of Indulgence, which, while confirming the status of the Church of England, allowed dissenters to worship in public and Catholics in private. Parliament, however, forced him to suspend the Declaration the next year, concerned about how far the King would determine religious matters 
and also about any encouragement of Catholicism. After the period of the Republic, there was much more acceptance of individuals making their own interpretation of the Bible. This really was revolutionary, writes Anthony Upton in his book Europe 1600 to 1789. Quote, for it struck of the most basic ideas of a society, where authority was transmitted down from on high to the established hierarchies. It struck at the whole structure of deference, and it transpired that after twenty years of suspension, the old hegemony of the restored Church of England could not be reinstated. Open religious dissent and pluralism had taken root in English society and became a permanent feature. End quote. There was also a brief emergence of secular radicalism in a movement known as the Levellers. This had grown out of the struggle for individual choice in religion and widened into a claim of individual right to participate in government. The English Levellers represent the first appearance in European history of a coherent movement advocated democratic participation as the basis for political authority. Yet democracy was an idea whose time had not yet come, and the movement proved of only marginal importance. Another significant development was that the English learned how to raise the kind of revenue needed to sustain a war. The administrative structures of the army and navy were developed and professionalised, particularly the leadership of the navy, who began to be able to effectively project English sea power on an oceanic scale. The English introduced changes to their ships' designs, which were copied by the Dutch. Large-scale engagements revealed the importance of so-called great or first-rate ships as a decisive weapon. In earlier naval campaigns, fleets contained some purpose-built warships, but most units were hired and converted merchant vessels. In the year 1660, Parliament renewed the Navigation Act, which had contributed to the beginning of the First Anglo-Dutch War. It required imported goods to be carried either in English ships or in ships of the country where goods originated. Parliament went further in 1662 by banning imports from the Dutch Republic. King Charles II himself made no sustained attempt to provide direction to English foreign policy. He frequently permitted ministers and courtiers to take initiatives contrary to formal policy, leading to confusion. In general, the young courtiers, hungry for office, and many pressed for another Dutch war. Among them was the younger brother of Charles, James, Duke of York, who took an active interest in naval matters in his position of Lord High Admiral. After the restoration, mercantile elements of the City of London, working with the nobles of the court, began to take a renewed interest in overseas markets and resources. They chartered the African Company to trade in gold, slaves and hide in West Africa. The Dutch considered the mere formation of the company as a hostile act, for the English now intended to do business in areas regarded as private preserves of the Dutch West India Company. In 1661, royal warships descended on a fort at the mouth of the River Gambia and evicted a small Dutch garrison there. 
the Dutch Estates General complained vigorously and took reprisals against the new company's ships and settlements. By 1664, a state of undeclared war existed between the Dutch and English as violent clashes occurred between traders of each nation in West Africa, the West Indies and the Americas. That same year, the English seized possession of New Amsterdam in North America and renamed it to New York. At home, the English commercial classes encouraged war. A wave of pamphlets denounced Dutch monopolies in the East Indies and, in their opinion, illegal fishing by the Dutch in the North Sea herring fisheries. They also raked up grievances past and present over the Spice Islands, including the Amboyne Massacre of 40 years before. After numerous skirmishes between the English and Dutch in West Africa and the Mediterranean, the Dutch declared war in January 1665, and the English followed suit a month later. A major concern for the English was France, where in 1661 the young King Louis XIV assumed personal control in 1661, and had just concluded a mutual defence pact with the Dutch. The English knew of Louis's lack of enthusiasm for the agreement, which was applied to get the Dutch to help in a war against the Spanish Netherlands. The English deliberately delayed declaring official war so as to avoid being blamed as the aggressor by the powers, and was enough of a pretext to allow Louis to evade his obligations. Nevertheless, he clearly favoured the Dutch, and as a powerful ruler who was then an unknown quantity, was potentially a serious threat to the English. Diplomatic contacts between the English and Dutch made no progress in resolving the ongoing disputes. In part, this was because the chief politician of the Netherlands, Johan de Witt, believed he must at all costs avoid a policy of appeasement. He made two wrong assumptions in the lead up to war. Firstly, he assumed the English Parliament would not have sufficient trust in the King to vote him the large amounts of money required for all-out war. In fact, they were persuaded to provide the finances. Secondly, he wrongly believed that the strengthening of the Dutch navy would deter the English. And so began, in full, the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which I will cover in the next episode. As ever, it's great to hear from you on the Facebook page of the podcast, A History of Europe Key Battles podcast, or you can write to me directly, carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. Or if you would like to support the show, get episodes a week earlier and a few bonus episodes, then please go to www.patreon.com slash historyeurope. Today's music was from the Italian Baroque composer Alessandro Scarlatti. You heard his Sinfonie di Concerto Grosso No. 12 in C minor, La Geniale. And to close out the show, I'll leave you with Concerti Grossi No. 5 in D minor. I hope you can join me next week. Until then, all the best and goodbye.